This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. You're listening to Panel Borders on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB in London. I'm Alex Fitch, and this is Resonance's monthly show about comics, graphic novels, and sequential art. In today's program, I'm talking to a couple of creators who work on science fiction comics and graphic novels. Later in the show, I'll be talking to artist Tim Fielder about his epic graphic novel Infinitum, an Afrofuturism tale, which covers millennia in the life of an immortal who observes the rise and fall of humanity, as well as his dieselpunk comic series Matty's Rocket. However, to start off with, in a Q&A that was recorded in front of a live online audience at the monthly Cartoon County event, I'm talking to writer Alex DeCampi about her young adult serial Full Tilt Boogie and her collaboration with director Duncan Jones on adapting his unmade film Maddie, Once Upon a Time in the Future, as a graphic novel. Full Tilt Boogie, uh, it's... Your second collaboration uh, with the artist, and I'm probably going to mangle his name, um, Eduardo Ocana. Ocana. You previously worked with him on a Humanoids title, and it seems appropriate, actually, that the collection of Full Tilt Boogie has just come out because it's done very much in that kind of European style, like a European album. Um, but it was serialised in 2000 AD first. How did the project come about? Well, Tharg, uh, I, I just finished up, um, gosh, either a Dread series or my Rogue Trooper. And and Tharg said, oh, well, you don't have anything. We're doing an all ages issue. You don't have anything all ages, do you? Um, and Ed and I had this thing we've been working on for a while. I mean, we, you know, after Ed and I did the Humanoids project together, we stayed friends. Um, the nice thing about doing mostly independent work that I kind of self-generate is the artists I end up doing long-term prog- projects with, I end up you know, staying friends with after you've worked on something with, with someone for a year or more, um, you know, you, you tend to you tend to be able to get along with each other. Um, and Ed and I, I've known Ed now for you know, over 10 years. Um, and uh, we had this project, we had Full Tilt Boogie. And I looked at it, I thought, you know, we could actually just tweak a few things in this and make it an all ages project. Um, and so we did. And I think the hardest thing was I'd planned it as this sprawling kind of Star Blazers style, you know, Japanese anime space epic. Um, and then adapting it to 2000 AD when, you know, I'm dealing with like a eight to 10 page magazine installment or a five to six page prog installment um, was was the main trick because um, it had been scripted far more than that. And um, it just got really fun. Like, it, it, I think... One of the fun things about the, sh- the short format is when you're given so little space, the greatest thing you can do is waste it. <laughs> it's so much fun to waste space in 2080. Like it, you just feel, it feels like the, it's the best feeling in the world to just be like, yep, we're gonna do a double page spread right here. No words, just spaceships. Suck it, everyone. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and meanwhile, you know, like no- normally when you approach these stories, you're having to be so, so economical. So you get, a a a um, good amount of a satisfying amount of story in your five to six pages without making with the illusion of space in there even though there's no actually no space because there's no room because it's five pages long um so there's a real there's a real 
thrill in uh, working with the compressed 2000 AD pacing. But also mm -hmm. unlike a lot of 2000 AD writers, and I've spoken, I, I spoke to Rob Williams who does amazing work in 2000 AD and like um, Arthur Wyatt and a couple of others that I know, I tend to sit there and write the whole series as what in one document. So Ed gets the whole thing divided up into episodes. And it's all, you know, like all, there's all this like, you know, episode six, page five. So if he like flips randomly to somewhere in the script, he knows exactly what episode and, and, and page he's on. Um, so it's got the, it's all paced out for those individual episodes, but also it's then hangs together as an entire graphic novel when it's extracted at the end of it. Um, hopefully better than if I had just written it in a, in a serialized form. There's always also some point where you hit episode eight and you're like, she needs she needs to have a flashlight in episode four. So I put a flashlight in there. Then you go back and like the nice thing about doing it is well, just cr sit, sitting down and cranking it all out is that you can then go back and say, Ed, she's going to need a flashlight in episode eight. So like she needs some form of light that she carries here. You know, it doesn't need to be noticeable, but just please pop it in there if you can. And then you know, that that's especially the case with a lot of what I do, which is like action thriller work. You want to have something that that, that that's salted in early that you can then let pay off later on. Mm. And you know, having written um, the whole series in advance, I guess does that make it easier to have mini cliffhangers every five or six pages, so that when uh, the reader gets to the end of that small section that's printed in a weekly comic it makes them hungry for more or do you just think actually because they know they're reading a long-form narrative that's going to be spread out over a number of weeks it's not so much of an issue well you always do a cliffhanger because that's you know you have to respect the readers of the prog and what they're there for and also you know, naturally in in comic pacing in a sort of action comic you'd be putting in a at least to some sort of mini cliffhanger every six pages anyway. So it's quite, it's not like you're significantly shifting the storytelling um, or the way you pace things out normally. Um, it, it is a slightly more determined because otherwise you might have a cliffhanger every four pages and then six pages and then, you know, two pages or whatever. Um, it's it's much more determined by by the length of the installments in the, in, in the, mag in the, in the program. But it's not it's not a burden. It's it's almost those little formalist challenges are all, uh, almost quite fun. Mm. And working with the larger page format of uh, European comics, did that give you kind of uh, an interest in creating more of a widescreen visual, as it were? I mean, the the double page spread that I've stopped on, um, for example, on the right hand side, has these lovely um, wide vistas of battle scenes and ships shooting each other and uh the inside of um the spaceship uh kind of control room because you know the page is just that little bit bigger does it mean you can actually kind of allow for that when you're plotting as well i mean i don't really think about being widescreen that was an old term that was brought about when warren ellis was doing decompressed comics like 15 20 years ago i think um you know it's not something i consciously think about that four panel stack is a really basic layout that I use all the time. Like if you look through my work, the two things you'll see me go back to a lot are an you know, opening or closing four panel stack like that um, and nine panel grids and, and variations on nine panel grids. Um, they're just, they're just, I don't know, like a, a, a comfort factor. And, um, you know, I think one of the things I do with the, the, the 
European sizing is go to a few more panels per page occasionally. Mm. Um, and again, it's a pacing issue, you know, action will have fewer panels. Um, when I want you to soak in the environment like that battle scene, fewer panels. Um, but, uh, you know, I'll use a lot more like reaction shots and cutaways to environment and things like that, um, which is which is actually more of a Japanese technique. It's, you know, stolen wholesale from folks like Naoki Urasawa. Um, then, then it is like trying, I, I, I kind of, I mean, I, I, we're about to talk about Duncan's book too, but mm. Duncan in my book, which is, you know, which is literally a comic edit, comic that started as a screenplay. So it's weird to say this, but I, I vehemently resist the idea of trying to make comics look more like movies. <laughs> comics should be comics and you should do things in them that you can only do in comics um, and, and take every advantage of the media, of, of, the, of, the, of the, the tricks that the format um, allows you to, to do rather than trying to make it look like a bunch of storyboards. Um, so I'm, I'm never trying to make it look like the storyboards to anything. Mm. Uh, although, and again, issues are complex. Although, you know, if you look at one of my scripts, you'll see I use a lot of cinematography shorthand for um, shot sizes because I have to make sure, like, all writers view their jobs and what they need to deliver to an artist differently. Uh, some people like to think that that giving the artist very little allows the artist to add more. I find that's just kind of lazy. Um, uh, I give the artist as much as I possibly can and call shot sizes as a baseline. So that I know that I know that they're getting a document with a baseline visual pacing that if they wake up in the morning and they're really, really hungover and not feeling it, they still have enough information in the script to draw the page. They also get a big health warning across the top going like, I've done this the best I can. Uh, if you can think of a way to do it better, please ignore everything and do it your way. Um, so if they wake up and they're full of beans and 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 think oh, I'm going to you know make the greatest page ever. Oh, she wants another nine panel grid. Forget her. I'm going to make it twelve panels, or I'm going to make it a splash page. Well, that's fine, because usually, I mean, not in the 2000 AD work, but usually, I um, I do my own lettering. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm. It's very very. I'm always relaxed about having to change dialogue or the arrangement of dialogue uh, because of art changes, because. When I letter, I'm going to change dialogue anyway. You know, I, I, I infrequently do full-on rewrites, though it has happened. Um, I will go through and delete dialogue where it's no longer necessary, shorten things where past me was too verbose, uh, salt in some sound effects here and there where I need to lead the eye to something like keys being picked up or a small detail, which is important to get the eye to stop there. So, you know, mm. I like to work in a sort of a jazz band format where we're just you know, passing the melody back and forth in a way. Nice. Um, I read that um, some of your influences on Full Tilt uh, Boogie were kind of classic manga and anime series from the 80s, like um, Gatchaman, Stroke, Battle of the Planets. And certainly some of the character design in Full Tilt Boogie kind of seems to refer back to uh, Battle of the Planets. What was it about that series that was kind of so influential uh, for you as a viewer? Uh, well, there's Battle of the Planets and Star Blazers, which are the U.S. the bad U.S. dub versions of, respectively, Space Battle Cruiser. Uh, sorry, um, Gotcha Man and Space Battle Cruiser Yamato. I was never really a Robotech person. Um, Robotech was just like started just as I was moving away from watching cartoons after school. Um, uh, 
I, I don't know. I like it, it was just my first experience with a great big space opera. And what I really loved about a, a lot of the, the, the um, you know, I, I, I hesitate to draw um, sweeping generalizations across an entire country's comics output. <laughs> <laughs> because it's, yeah, it's bad. Um, but I find um, Japanese storytelling in comics tends to put a greater emphasis on emotional arcs of characters within some really often quite imaginative and wonderful world building than a lot of um, US comics do. Um, mm -hmm. And I really loved the small emotional moments and the teen characters and, you know, just like cool things happening, but also, you know, a, a real sense of heart to it. And that's why that's why I really I, I love those stories. Um, they, and they had cool female characters too. Mm. <laughs> but I mean, it's been it's been a while since I've watched it. But there's something really uh, resonant about the look of Black Dog in particular. That it's something in my subconscious. It's triggering, but I can't say exactly <laughs> what it was from those cartoons or something similar. But well, to be fair, I mean, um, uh, Ed designed most almost all the characters with very mm. little input from me oh. so um you know he kind of i kind of gave him vague suggestions and then and then he said fantastic let's do it um and i, I said yeah he's, and he just went for it and then sent me designs back and i thought oh, this is great so mm. but some of the more kind of surrealistic elements presumably are entirely used such as the kind of monochromatic uh cherubs that are flying about in this world <laughs> And that's something that I've I've always really liked about your work is kind of the juxtaposition of really kind of unexpected elements in a certain kind of genre, the way that you kind of mash things up. Thank you. Yeah, it's um there's a sort of absurdist <clears throat> there's a sort of absurdism to it that I like, you know. Like why can't the sleeping temple be a giant baby's face? Like why can't <laughs> they just have like little animatronic cherubs that go around and get them every day? You know, this is the you're looking at this the, the empress and her children in that bottom left panel. You know, why can't she just have cherubs that that fetch and carry for her? Um and um you know, Ed was more than happy to do it. Like why can't we have a uh, you know, a cat who's possibly an interdimensional parasite, you know. Um, <laughs> I, th I think there's a, because I, because I'm not, I mean, they're fundamentally, writers tend to be either more character writers or world builders. And I'm very much a world, um, I'm very much a character writer rather than a world builder. I, I can tell you like everything about these characters. Um, and sometimes I wonder that my world building isn't enough um, because it's it's just not something I do. I don't sit there and plan out like every detail of the world. I plan out the details of the world that are relevant to and will and will come into contact or conflict with my characters. And after that, like there be dragons, I don't care. Um, so as part of that, I like to just throw in some curveballs every so often, maybe to compensate for the fact that I'm not like creating giant world bibles the way some writers do. Mm. Um, so like and also, said, in, like also, I blame Jodorowsky, and I blame uh, also like my other great love, which is which is um, French uh, French sci-fi comics, a lot of Enki Bilal work, a lot of Jodorowsky stuff, um, and there was always something you know absolutely buck wild going on in like classic French sci-fi bidet. 
My schedule is a nightmare right now. So I haven't really been pitching around much stuff because for the past, okay, from, from last May to this June, I put out my first novel, uh, True War Stories, which is a book of um, autobiographical book of um, soldier stories um, from deployment uh, that I edited and I adapted most of the stories and lettered them with a, with my co-editor, um, who is a um, uh, an American female uh, veteran. Duncan, uh, Maddie with Duncan Jones, Dracula Mother with, uh, uh, actually, we don't, we're not seeing me, so I, I don't know why I'm holding up a book and you guys are looking at it. <laughs> Dracula Motherfucker from Image with Erica Henderson, The Backups, which was my YA graphic novel with First Second, and later this month, I have my second novel coming out. So, and I think I probably put something else out that I don't remember. Oh, other mm. than Full Tilt Boogie. I've been working really, really, like, I just got slammed with deadlines. And I'm, st- I'm still producing Bad Karma, which is my um, uh, buddy comedy action comic on Panel Syndicate, which you all can download for free. Um, it's got four chapters up, 140 pages of comics. They're long chapters. Um, and we're putting the fifth one up in about a month. Um, and, you know, I'm working on other long form projects in the background. And so, you know, it's not like, oh, I, you know, I, I know not, I don't know anyone at Humanoids anymore, but my old editor at Humanoids is now at Glenna and he's lovely. Mm-hmm. I and mean, I'd absolutely work with him again. I just haven't had a chance to pitch anything. Yeah. Um, recently. So, I mean, very much it's, it's guys, if, if people come to me, I'd be very grateful for it. <laughs> But also, I'm weird, and I'll only, only work with companies that let me keep all, all, like, they can have some of the publishing rights, but if they try to take any of the other rights, I'm not going to work with them, which cuts out, like, about 75% of the American monthly comics companies. Um, sure. When you're, I mean, you know, you just said that you're working on several projects simultaneously. How hard is it to kind of go between different types of storytelling like that? Because obviously... A comic, uh, a serial like Full Tilt Boogie is aimed at a younger audience and indeed is part of 2000 AD's initiative to bring in younger readers. And then when you're working on something like Dracula Mother for Image, that's obviously an adult comic. And so, you know, to work for very different audiences, uh, either one after another or simultaneously, do you have to kind of put yourself into a kind of different mental state in order to reach that kind of audience when you're doing that kind of writing? really um i mean it's one of these things like you know i'm a professional i just do it um it is one of the reasons i do things like full tilt boogie in one go rather than bouncing back and forth you know i like to be only bouncing back and forth between a couple of projects in the writing stage i can kind of write two things at the same time going back and forth between them if other things i'm reviewing art or or doing lettering work that's like another skill brain that's another part of my brain so i can i can handle that but um it's hard to, and I, and I like them to be quite different projects that I'm bouncing between, because uh, then you, you know, I'm, the one I'm working on, one I'm, I'm working on a sci-fi story right now and, and my third novel, um, which is very different. Um, I can multitask pretty well, but in terms of the actual writing stage, there really is a maximum of two things I can do at once. Mm. And the kids stuff, like, you know, you, you just, you know what the borders are of what you can do. And I'm, and I'm a great believer in you shouldn't, dumb or simplify things down for kids and you shouldn't make them less dangerous. I mean, they can't be bloody. There can't be sex. There can't be swearing. 
Mm. Um, but you can still create a, a great sense of fear or, um, or danger. And I think, I think kids like that because um, it makes it feel more grown up to them, even if, it, you know, even if, even if it's still appropriate for them. Mm. Uh, and there's a wonderful sequence. I, I finished Full Tilt Boogie 2, second arc, uh, about a month ago. And there's a really wonderful sequence in there, which is essentially a haunted house sequence that, that is really terrifying. <laughs> Although no blood is spilled and you know, no harm done, it is, it is still extremely scary. Hmm. Nice. Um, let's move on to Maddie. Um, like I said, this was intended as the third of Duncan Jones's sci-fi trilogy following Moon and Mute. And indeed, uh, as a coincidence, uh, two or three years ago, we had Glenn Fabry as a guest um, at Cartoon County, and he was talking about doing the graphic adaptation of Mute, but then obviously the film came out, and so the comic was cancelled. But with this, the full screenplay has been adapted by you as a graphic novel. Um, So how did... It was adapted by me and Duncan. I mean, I think people need to know how absolutely hands-on on on a daily basis Duncan was with this. Um, You know, I took it, we talked about chopping it up and, 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 and doing it with different artists because I think the experience with Glenn had been, um, there are various issues going on at Dark Horse at the time and with Glenn that meant the comic was not done when the comic was supposed to be done. um, And in fact, has never been finished. And then once we'd figured out that we wanted to take it between different people, I started then doing breakdowns and drafting a script, which I did. Uh, I, I did the breakdowns like on the printout of the screenplay and then transferred them to actual script pages on a Google Doc. Um, and then Duncan would review the Google Doc every 10 pages and he'd work on it as well and change things and adjust things. Because um, both of us, I mean, the story moved on from the screenplay in significant ways mm. um, as we adapted it. Because every, every time you look again at a story you write, you you tweak parts of it and you take bits of it further or or change them it's just the nature like you know a work of art is never finished only abandoned um and so yeah he was you know he from from co-writing with me to checking the lettering to you know to, to giving notes on pencils for the artists to helping you know to choosing the artists with me like Duncan was was like heavily heavily involved at every stage so i you know it's this is not duncan's screenplay that i adapted this is the book that duncan and i did together <laughs> sure <laughs> um well you, you mentioned the lettering and i just wanted to point out as well as it being a terrific selection of artists I, the lettering's excellent as well the way that there are so many different kinds of uh reproduction of words on the page from background noise as we see in these three pages to announcements on the train, to the individual voices um, of characters. I mean, as a letterer, uh, it, it feels that lettering is very much an unappreciated art form in comics. And with this project, it certainly feels like you're doing as many different kinds of lettering as is humanly possible on the page. Well, I had to change the lettering style for certain artists because the, you know, I, I, this one stock lettering style that I established essentially with, on Dylan Teague's art here, which is very easy to letter on, Though he tends to, you know, um, different different artists push you as a letterer in different ways, and um, Dylan suits these very like clean sort of Bebus new like sound effects, like big white sound effects. I don't know if you have more of, the, of his work um, into the uh, uh, yeah. You can, that's you can see some of that. Um, 
uh, and um, and this you know this this fairly clean lettering style. And then when we were getting onto like Simon Bisley, like this clean lettering style on Simon Bisley's painted work just didn't fly. It just sat on top like an uninvited guest. Um, <laughs> what I hate about a lot of the very computerized, fast lettering that people are doing, um, mostly because letters aren't paid enough to, you know, to be able to actually take their time. This is Duncan Fregretto. There's Fabry. Um, and so I completely changed the font to a typewriter font. Um, it is the most gothic you know, thing I've ever done. And the stroke is completely different. It's a, it's a, it's a chalk pencil stroke. Um, and even the balloon fills not white because there's no white on that page. And if I put white on that page, it's going to, it's going to start screaming at you instead mm. of like, and it's going to compete with, 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 with the, the lovely muted tones that's there. And you can see it's pure white on the, on the Andre Araujo um, and Chris O'Halloran page on the far left there. That's a typical white balloon. And then you can see that the balloons on the Fabry page are not quite white. And I used a lot of transparency and overlay and the sound effects, like that big crack at the top where the guy gets kicked. Because again, if it's, you know, it just doesn't, the, the transparency inherent in Simon's painting doesn't allow for these like block opaque sound effects dropped on top. You, I, I really feel strongly, that's my dog's arch. Um, I really feel strongly that you have to, like the letter's first job is to, is to, create something graphically harmonious with the, with the page it's on um mm, definitely um one of the really interesting things about uh, maddie is the way that the different artists take on different scenes and in a way that actually feels quite a cinematic thing to do the way that in you know in film there are all of these different tools that you can use to establish atmospheres such as different lighting, different um, noises and music on the soundtrack, to actually have a different artist, you know, take over the scene when, for example, as we see here, a character goes through a doorway from outside into inside, all of a sudden it's a different artist. That's a really interesting um, technique to see in a comic. And I guess it's something that you kind of experimented with uh, previously in your graphic novel Ashes, where again, there were different artists doing different scenes. Yeah, well, originally Ashes was supposed to be drawn by all one artist, but um, that artist unfortunately turned out to um, not work well with women. Um, and uh, it, was, um, it became a very unpleasant experience for me to be getting all caps emails from this person. And so I fired them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and everything suddenly became much better and then broke the story up into segments because I, you know, we, we had a funded Kickstarter and I had to get this book out and I still wanted to get this book out. It was a good book, um, despite the, the original artist deciding, turning out to be not a great fit as a collaborator. Um, so I knew it worked and I had an, a, a basic idea of how to do it. Um, I even asked some of the same people. I mean, Andre Araujo, I mean, I'm sorry, um, R.M. Guerra did both a section of Ashes and a section of um, Maddie. Um, but Duncan's story did like worked out really, really well for dividing up. And we had a basic principle of every time a new artist took over, they would take over on a double page spread. So you would turn the page and immediately be completely immersed in the new artist's world in a new location. Um, and there would be that, and then there's like Duncan Fregredo's opening spread, for example, and, and Jacob Phillips on paints. Um, and so you had a moment to kind of get used to the new environment, the new scene, the new art style, and you weren't seeing the same character 
drawn by two different people bang up against each other. Of course, then later on, you know, the only reason to establish a rule in a story, a formal rule in a story, is to break it at the best possible moment. And then, of course, later on, we have pa panels of the artists, you know, together. There we go. Um, with that's Tanchi Zanchik at the top, then it's Lorenz um, in the center, and that's Glenn Fabry at the bottom. But then, you know, for effect, basically, we we have these two characters looking at the same image, um, but drawn in different art styles. Myth mm. just asked if the artists um, got to see each other's work. Yes, uh, we worked out of a giant Dropbox, um, and uh, as soon as any, and we had um, shared folders of sketches of the characters, which were done by different artists. Um, so people could see the sketches and they could also go back and see um, the art that um, uh, everyone else was doing, um, which, you know, helped encourage some of them to greater heights. I think, I think Duncan Figretto and Glenn Fabry had a bit of a competition going. Um, and, um, and also just let people see, you know, useful things like, oh, well, I have to draw that truck later. What does it look like? And, um, you know, what's the lead into my scene? And sometimes because people, we weren't working, you know, we weren't working um, uh, uh, continuously, we weren't like in, in, from beginning to end, we were hopping around. Like Pia Guerra's section was one of the first sections completed and that's fairly late in the book. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you couldn't, you might not necessarily have the, work, the, the part before you finished, but you had other things to look at and you could see how people were drawing a character, what mm. she was wearing. And Duncan and I immediately decided that we'd be fairly loose on continuity in terms of, you know, like, is she wearing the exact same tank top between this artist and that artist? Who cares? <laughs> is she slightly off model? Like, it doesn't matter. Like I want, we wanted people to, we wanted Lorenz to draw like Lorenz. And we wanted Tanchi to draw like Tanchi. We didn't want them to like be doing like some Buffy comic where the, where Sarah Michelle Geller's agent has to approve all the likenesses and stuff like that. Cause that just seems like a miserable way to exist. <laughs> um, so could you talk a little bit about how you and Duncan collaborated then? Cause you, it was obviously intended as a film, but you said that the comic was written very much as a collaboration between the two of you. Yes. Um, I mean, he sent me the screenplay. I printed it out at Kinko's, which is you know, the American print shop. <laughs> Um, right-hand page only, and then I started doing breakdowns on the left-hand pages. I first divided up what I thought the scenes would be between the different artists, and we started looking for artists, um, you know, with a basic idea. This is James Stokoe, who's wonderful. Um, uh, and, you know, then you, then I start, began at the beginning and started writing, um, and I did it not last summer, but the summer before last out in Maine, I, I, I did I, I, I did almost all the adaptation. Um, and so I you know, do breakdowns of about 20 pages and then I go back and I then turn those breakdowns into script. I think I think I had, a, I can't remember whether I had an intermediary word doc or that, that went straight to Google Doc. I think there was an intermediary word doc. So as soon as things went, got, got posted into, Google, on, into the Google doc, um, Duncan could look it over as a finished first draft um, comic script. Um, and, you know, just the pressure, pressure was on me to get it done as fast as I reasonably could. So the artists would have as much time to draw as they, as, as, as we could possibly manage. Um, mm. and, you know, I'd do something, Duncan would review it or change it. You know, he'd do something, I'd review it, you know, like it, it just all went back and forth. Um, okay. Um, but before I, 
open it up to the audience. I'm just kind of curious what your kind of outlook is when you're doing science fiction, because some of your work seems to be very optimistic. Some of it seems to be pessimistic. I mean, presumably, you know, the scene that we're looking at now where this huge casino megapolis has been put on top of the Grand Canyon is both kind of like a vision of hell and something that's optimistic at the same time. Is, is it again, is it that kind of juxtaposition that appeals to you? Yeah, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm generally optimistic as a person. I like happy endings. You know, I think you get a, a stage in your life past where, you know, like, I want to be real and write a story about how much life sucks because it actually sucks. Seems a little tiresome. Um, mm. You know, I've had some really crappy things happen in my life. I've had some wild times, but, you know, I, I want to write something that eventually that allows people to escape their lives for a little while and, and ends up making them feel nice. Mm. Um, but as part of that, you can't just Pollyanna your way through it, you know, in order for there to be some sort of catharsis through the reading of fiction, uh, the characters have to go through things a worse time than you. Their problems have to be worse than yours. Mm. It's also how religion works. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I mean, there are happy endings, but they're not, ha they're not necessarily happy stories. Indeed. Did actually, when you had to compile pages where it was different artists on the same page, I guess that needed an element of graphic design as well in order to kind of get the panels so that they worked well next to each other so that there wasn't, you know, confusing overlap. Yeah, and we were sharing, everyone was sharing pencils back and forth. There's one page, there's one page that's a, what was technically difficult was a split page between Chris Weston and um, Christian Ward, um, which I don't think you have, but it was, that was some, that was some back and forth. Um, I had to have a really good picture of what it was in my, I wanted in my mind. Um, and again, you'll notice that a lot of the, a fair amount of the split pages are things like, are really basic, like three panel stacks or something like that. Mm. Um, or a six panel grid where someone's got panels one, three, and five, and someone's got two, four, and six. Yeah. Um, the page on the right actually is all Lorenz. He just used two different techniques. Um, oh. The page on the left is, is a split. Um, you know, I do the graph. I mean, I'm, I, I don't consider myself a good graphic designer, but um, I have ended up doing all of the graphic design for my books because there wasn't anyone else to do it. I mean, that's, what, that's why I started lettering too. I, I, when I was doing Valentine, I just didn't have the money to pay a letter. Um, so I learned to do it myself and then I kept doing it because I enjoyed the graphic element of it. And then it got to the point where it would take me longer to do a lettering script than it would to actually letter the damn book myself. And that's saying something because I am the world's slowest letterer. But yeah, I mean, if you look at all my books, like I've, you know, I did the, I did the design for Dracula. I did the design for Maddie, you know, pretty much anything of mine that's creator owned. I've had a really heavy hand in if not, I, and again, I've wanted to work with, with graphic designers. I actually sent Tom Mueller an email ages ago going, I'd really love you to do some design work for me. And he never replied. So I felt like, oh, I guess I'm not very important. And I never contacted him again. You know, sometimes, yeah. <laughs> so there are a number of questions in the audience. Uh, Michael, do you want to unmute yourself? Hello. Uh, thanks for speaking to us, Alex. Beautiful stuff on the screen there. Um, I'm always interested to hear a little bit more about people's uh, process for between initial idea, writing, getting it to the artwork, and... Um, 
you've told us a bit about that. You told us um, that, that you did, uh, at least some of the time, you do your own breakdowns, I take it? Is that yeah, um, yeah. I mean, yeah. So what I do is, is I mean, I, I, I play around with an idea for a long time and it exists yeah. messily in. It starts off in this, which is my wee moleskin, favorite sticker. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, and um, I, I just play around with that. And I have the worst handwriting in the world. And I just, I, I sit in the dog park or I sit in the park and I'm trying to figure out, I've got some characters. I've got a kind of beginning and, I, and I'm trying to figure out what, what the whole story is and what their arc is and what they want and blah, blah, blah. All the boring, all the boring technical writing stuff. Yeah. And then when I've got a, when I've when I've got that or when I'm starting to get that together, I do an outline and an outline for me is what happens per chapter or per issue. I very much prefer to write in graphic novel format. So my chapters can be like I write until I'm done what I have to say and then I stop versus an issue where it's like, oh, it has to be 20 pages long, at least in America. Um, that's not to say I don't enjoy writing for like 2000 AD. That's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful challenge. Um, but, you know, I when I'm doing my stories, I like to just right until the book is done. Um, and so I'll write an outline and that's what happens per, per chapter. And then once that is done and I've kind of let it sit for a little while, um, I kind of believe you can't rush these things. So you need to like have about a week away from it to kind of just process at yeah. least um, sometimes years. <laughs> um, and then I go do breakdowns and breakdowns are what happens per page. Um, and after the breakdowns are done, and there's, there's a lot of flow back and forth between like, you know, breakdowns and chapter and like, there's a lot of changes that happen. Once I start doing, once the breakdowns are finished, I then go back and I write a script and the script is what happens per panel. So, you know, like it goes from chapter one, wall of text to chapter one, page one, blop, page two, blop. Um, and this is pretty much the same, whether it's Full Tilt Boogie or Maddie or Dracula Motherfucker or Bad Karma or any of my other work. It, it, it's, it's all this, a similar process. And then when the script is done, and again, there's a lot of change between the breakdowns and the script because sometimes something I think that will take three pages actually turns out to take one page or sometimes it takes six pages. Um, I get better at it, but you know, I, I still have a slight tendency to try to do too much on a page and I'm always trying to calm it down and leave more room for the art and more room for reactions and more room for like the acting of it rather than just, you know, rushing through it. Um, uh, and once the script is done, you know, we'll assume this is a fantasy land where I have an artist who's available to write, to draw like my 250 page book and magic money to pay for it, um, which doesn't often happen. Um, and then as they're working, I often find myself go, going back and tweaking things. Um, I've, I've done this to Ryan a couple of times with bad karma. I mean, like, and sometimes when pencils happen, like, I'm just like, wow, I scripted that badly. And we, can we change this panel because I fucked it up? You know, this doesn't work. Um, or can we look at it a different way? I think one of the, my biggest concerns is, is with working with artists is one, give all the, uh, uh, give all your notes at pencil stage. You shouldn't be making any notes at ink stages at all. Um, color is separate, obviously. Um, and two, yeah. um, you know, try to, as well as making sure you give at least one compliment for every, you know, criticism um, yeah. is try to um, figure out a way of making the page work that requires as little extra effort from the artist as possible in terms of like if it doesn't work as it is as, as it's penciled out or as it's some nailed out um, try to figure out a way you can make it work maybe it's like just swapping two panels or maybe it's just enlarging a panel or maybe it's just 
you know, removing someone's hand from a, from a panel rather than, oh, can we completely redraw this? Because that just wastes people's time and annoys them. Um, but, you know, often, you know, we're, we're, on, we're on page like 165 of Bad Karma and Bad Karma is 275 pages in all. Um, so we're coming up to the end of the fifth chapter and, and Ryan got to a point where I was like flipping, flipping ahead of him because when he sends the pencils, I open up the script and I like look at the script and look at the pencils. And that's really crucial because a lot of people will just like be like, pretty things in inbox. Oh, lovely. It's great. And then they come to put the letters on and they're like, oh no, there's a problem. Yeah, yeah. You can't do that. Like you have to have the script there and you have to have the pencils there. You have to look between them to make sure everything fits. You know, yeah. dumb stuff like, you know, do all the, is there enough room for all the lettering? Like I had that with a, with a pitch I was working on. And again, you know, the first 10 pages of the new artists are often the hardest because um, they're getting used to working with you and you're getting used to working with them and everybody has different working methods. And I was doing a pitch with some friends and they like, they consistently didn't leave enough room for the letters. And I had, I basically sent them the font and was like, you know, you guys will be able to improve your work over a longer term basis by temping in the letters or like, you know, just figuring out where the letters are going on that panel that you're creating because there isn't room for them and I'm happy to cut dialogue, but, and, and I, these are not dialogue heavy pages. This isn't like, you know, a, a, an issue of X-Men where it's like seven people in a panel and they're all talking and fighting. Like, no, this was like two characters. Yeah. Um, it's a perennial problem, isn't it? Squeezing those letters in. Yeah, I mean, but also I was spoiled by working early on in my career with people like Carlos B. Neal. And I like, I prefer to work with uh, artists who are also, I mean, every artist is a writer, but like artists who, who are, are publishing their own work as well that they've written um, because they understand things like leaving enough room for the letters and and um, and I appreciate their viewpoints. Like, I, and I appreciate everyone's viewpoints, but like I find when, you know, I, I'm, I'm really thrilled to get story notes from people um, because I'd really much rather have my artists go, hey, there's a better way of doing this than like the audience say that, <laughs> you know, like, hey, this could have been done better. Like, let's let's do that behind the production curtain. Um, but yeah, I was I remember Ryan was was coming up to the end of a big action scene and I flipped ahead and I looked at him like, damn, I rushed this like past me rushed this scene. Um, I was like, Ryan, I'm going to turn page. I can't remember what it was like page 149, 149 into. A spread and another page. So we're going to maintain like page, mm. um, you know, the, the right-hand pages will remain on the right-hand pages. And, and can, but, I, can I just ask as a technical thing, do you have a certain program that you use for when the thing has become quite big? Say it's at pencils or, or it's all, anyway, it's all laid out and then you suddenly decide, oh, we need to sort of slot something in there. You, there must be some program there where you can put all the artwork and everything together in such a way so that when you slot things in, it's, it's relatively painless, is there? I mean, that's, uh, I mean, we're dealing with all the pages individually. Um, there's just a big, there's just a big Dropbox file, usually with lots of Adobe Illustrator um, subfiles, and each mm. one is one page, or the double page spreads are like one page. So it's very easy to slot things in. Sometimes you end up with a page 149A and 149. Oh, yeah, yeah. So yeah. that's how you slot it in. You, have to, you don't have to renumber everything. We, we do lots of A's and B's and, and occasionally C's and D's when we really fuck yeah. up. Um, and uh, it's fine. And I'll, I'll send, we, we work off um, either a Google Doc or a, a copy of the script in Microsoft Word in Dropbox. So if I have to change something, everybody knows that 
they're working from the most update version if they're just working on the Dropbox version. Because especially for bad karma, I've got Ryan doing pencils and inks, yeah. and if doing colors. So, so as not to make Dee's life a nightmare when he finds out that Ryan and I have gone off reservation and like added some random pages, you know, um, he's gonna be able to see what's going on there. Hmm. Wow. Nice. Thank, thank, thanks very much. Could I, could I just ask your breakdowns? Do you, do you use those to, um, to sort of help you write a script or is it also something that you send well, off to, to the artist? Are a, the middle step in the scripting process. Yeah. So um, I don't actually draw, I, like, I infrequently draw breakdowns. I can kind of close my eyes and see it <laughs> um, yeah. for a really complicated page some, when I'm doing something super, like asking for something super innovative, you know, sometimes yeah. I'll sketch it out just because otherwise, like, I can't express it in words yeah. very well. Um, we had this one thing with, with again, with Ryan where, where we were having these characters having a discussion and we'd done a bunch of a couple of nine panel grid pages and it was a bit heavy, it was getting a bit heavy so we did the next one as a splash page and yeah. the um man and woman sitting on a park bench um and we did three instances of the woman um in three different poses on the park bench as she's gradually turning towards the guy and the, the first time i scripted it ryan was like i have no fucking clue what you mean and we finally worked out by looking at old spider-man comics of like spider-man like jumping across and, like several instances of spider-man on the same splash page like swinging through through whatever city he swings through i can't remember um uh the, the, that, that that's the technique i meant because i couldn't describe it um so sometimes we'll and and i do like bad ms paint you know like Adobe Photoshop yeah. sketches of things um, on low res JPEGs, just like stick figures to show Ryan, you know, what show what I mean sometimes. Um, so yeah, like we'll, we'll literally, I, I will literally use any method possible to try to communicate what I'm trying to say. But also, you know, Ryan is free to turn around and go, you know what, Alex, that's a great idea, but it just doesn't work. Here's what we're going to do instead. And I'll be like, right on. <laughs> thank you. Um, thank but, you. Yeah, the breakdown, yeah, thank like, you. As an artist, word is is a, you know a page rough um for as a writer word it's essentially a page rough but it's a page rough in words it's got like it's got a vague idea how many panels it's probably got some temp dialogue it's got what happens on the page and it depends on how much I've, i i understand that page whether it really is like little like points of like you know her reaction dialogue he does that dialogue you know etc or whether it's just like they go to the spaceship blah you know like that's a problem for you, future Alex. Like, so yeah. Nice. Um, Jonathan, you had a question. Yes, hello. Really interesting talk, thanks. Um, I'm aware that you've, you've done some crowdfunding, right? With Kickstarter and so forth. Yes, I've um, done four Kickstarters at this point. Yeah, so what's what's your feeling about that at this day? I think I heard that you were a bit disillusioned with, the, with that. And what's the pros and cons as you see it of crowdfunding? I mean, I'm not disillusioned with it. I was I had some trouble with Z2 in that their warehouse was very disorganized, um, and so um, and weren't very good at, report, at like replying to customer support emails. So I had to become customer support for a while, and and, and that I I was you know I it was taking a lot of time away from me doing what I actually do moderately well, which is write books. And I got annoyed about that because so I kept saying, guys, you know, you need to get your shit together. Um, and they have not, in fact, got their shit together. But um, I think Kickstarter is a wonderful um, uh, way of doing things. Um, you know, I would strongly recommend, if you can, pairing with a small publisher who has some experience handling printer contracts 
and has some distribution because um, it's one thing to make, like making a book is hard enough. Like making a whole graphic novel is a really great achievement. Like it's tough. Um, then getting it printed and shipped to all around the world and people complaining about shipping prices. And then you realizing you didn't calculate the shipping prices right. And you're really out of pocket because um, you had a lot of backers in America and they don't really care that it costs double what you said it was. They're already yelling about how much it cost. Like, you know, it's the business side of Kickstarter in terms of actually logistically getting the books out is not to be um, underestimated. Um, I mean, I have, friends who are smaller press creators who do Kickstarters regularly. I mean, Meredith McLaren, everything she she puts up there, I will back. Um, Spike Trotman, who built a whole business out of it. Like she built a whole publishing company out of Iron Circus Comics on Kickstarter. Um, there are a lot of really great small press comics that are brought to life on Kickstarter. Um, and it's a really wonderful way to get out to, I think sort of to work in parallel to getting books in bookshops and comic shops. Um, Cause there's, you know, there's one crowd of people that goes to comic shops. There's one crowd of people that only buys their comics from a bookshop. And then so they only buy a couple of years cause they buy some graphic novels and that's it. Um, and then there are just people on Kickstarter who think it looks groovy and why not? Um, and it's nice to, to essentially have the costs of if you're lucky, the costs of producing your book prepaid essentially by the Kickstarter. Um, it's a lot of work though. Like it's not, like it, it's no, it's no easy magic solution to publishing, even though we all wish it was. Mm. Thanks. Alex, have you got time to stick around for another question or have you got to dash off? I can do one more, yeah. Simon said that he likes your attention to the craft of constructing a comic um, and perhaps not enough writers give that enough love. Do you find that your kind of attention for the whole project comes from doing the lettering as well? Gosh, you know, I, am I just detail oriented or am I or am I secretly a control freak? Um, I mean, I think doing the lettering has has really given me an appreciation for for. Yeah, I, I think the lettering is a lot of it. I mean, a lot of it is just simply I had to because no one else was going to do the cover design and no one else was going to do the letters and stuff. Um, so it was born of necessity and, 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 and poverty, um, and nobody, you know, nobody else there to do it. But, um, I now like, even though I probably shouldn't let her anymore, I'm never going to be able to give it up because I don't know any other writers who sit there and are able to look at the art at like 600%, like every page I have looked at every detail of every page. Cause I am busy covering those details with lettering balloons. <laughs> um, so it's, uh, it, it's, it has definitely made me more aware of the craft and more interested in the craft. Um, and aside from that, I'm probably just very persnickety. Nice. Alex, thank you very much for coming along to Cartoon County and joining us via the magic of Zoom. It's been great to hear you talk about your work. Uh, if everyone wants to unmute and maybe applaud so that we can have some raucous... <laughs> Okay, thanks a lot. You can find more information about Alex DeCampi's work by going to her website, alexdecampi.com. That's A-L-E-X-D-E-C-A-M-P-I.com. More info about Full Tilt Boogie by going to 2000AD.com and searching for Full Tilt Boogie. And more info about Maddie Once Upon a Time in the Future by going to z 2 comics.com 
That's the letter Z, the number two, comics.com. You can hear my previous interview with Alex DeCampi, where we're talking about her webcomic Valentine, by going to our website, www.panelborders.wordpress.com. My interview with Alex was recorded at Cartoon County, a monthly online event in which a cartoonist comes along and talks about their work, with a number of members of the audience coming from the comic book community, which always leads to a lively interview and debate. You can find more info about Cartoon County by going to cartooncounty.com. In the second half of today's programme, I'm talking to writer and artist Tim Fielder about his work in the genre of Afrofuturism, including his new epic graphic novel Infinitum, which covers millennia in the life of an immortal who observes the rise and fall of humanity, as well as his dieselpunk comic series Matty's Rocket, which he began as a number of serialised comics a few years ago, and will be continuing shortly as a graphic novel series. So I've just read your graphic novel, and it's it's fantastic. It's the kind of spectacle of history and time and space is so kind of epic and all-consuming. Infinitum kind of reminds me of sort of things like the tale of Gilgamesh, that not only... Are you tapping into kind of 20th and 21st century science fiction, but also these kind of epic legends from the past? Were those the kind of things that you wanted to combine in this project? Yes. And thank you for even bringing in the kind of biblical uh, 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 scope of it. Uh, Methuselah, Gilgamesh, uh, all those type of uh, 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 legend and myth based uh, narratives, uh, you know, or, you know, depending upon what, what you, you know, your, your idea is that some people call them fact, <laughs> you know, which is okay, you know, but that's what I wanted to do. Uh, but with a black character, uh, uh, because Afrofuturism is, is, which is what I am. I'm an Afrofuturist. Uh, I wanted to take something, but embed it within the historical through line. If I could, or at least attempt, not saying that I was successful, but that was certainly the attempt. Mm. So when you think of a project, what's your kind of starting point? Is it the characters? Is it the narrative arc? Is it the kind of period that you want to set it in? Because looking at uh, Infinitum, um, which starts in the distant past and goes you know, to the, the end of time itself, that obviously has an epic scale. And then a comic like uh, Matty's Rocket is very much grounded in two time periods, the 1920s and then an alternate 1960s where mankind has seen its kind of technology progress because of an alien encounter. So is it the kind of the setting that kind of enriches the world or is it the characters that come first? Yeah, that's a very good question. It fluctuates between the two. Uh, I would also say that because when I'm telling a story, it's always a premise. So the uh, say in the case of Maddie's Rocket, which uh, only a few exist, <laughs> uh, Maddie's Rocket, which I'm actually doing a revised variant of now. Uh, Maddie's Rocket was done for my parents, who were in, both in their 80s, and as uh African-Americans who were born in the 30s and raised in the 40s and 50s, they did not see characters that looked like themselves in a kind of speculative environment. So uh, I wanted to do that story that was never done. 
and mm-hmm. to actually create it. But at the same time, they never saw themselves in comics as well as film. So Maddie's Rocket, for those who uh, have seen it, uh, pays homage not only to Dan Dare, you know, which is, I love the work of Frank Hampson. He's just such a phenomenal talent and had such a tremendous influence on me. As a matter of fact, I got my Dan Dares here somewhere. <laughs> uh, and uh, I wanted to do something that not only filled that void, that missing DNA from uh, 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 Black history, but I also wanted to pay homage to Hergé. In fact, uh, it's so interesting. Last night, my son got me a Father's Day gift, uh, 1010, which is crazy. I love 1010. I love Hergé's work. And so I wanted to do something that blended all those different elements that I love together. Uh, and that's what Maddie's Rock is. Maddie's Rocket is. Infinitum, uh, I wanted something bigger. As a person who's been a lifelong Afrofuturist uh, since uh, I'm 54 now, and I've been doing Black characters, Black modalities within the science fiction modes, ooh, since I was like 12, you know, you know, post-Star Wars, but you know, all of a sudden you're bringing this African, uh, Afrocentric element Uh, I wanted to do something to show the full through line of Afrocentricity from the distant past, paying homage to the works of Charles Saunders to the contemporary, you know, near future and then beyond, beyond race, if you will. Mm. Uh, And so that's what Infinitum was. And I wanted to do something, frankly, uh, one of my favorite stories um, is a story called Exile of the Eons by Arthur C. Clarke. And, uh, you know, 2001, obviously, this guy did these stories that were like bigger than life. And so that's what I wanted to do. That was the attempt. Mm, Nice. Well, then, of course, if we, you know, bring a science fictional reading to some of these historical myths, I mean, even, you know, Gilgamesh can be read read as much as science fiction. It is fantasy. When you think of, I don't know, for want of a better word, the depiction of race in these ancient myths, well, you have to think, a lot of these characters are going to be black because literally yeah because the further you go back in time the more everyone is going to be black but that's just not something that is kind of like discussed you know in terms of how these legends are interpreted yeah the continents shifted and broke apart and people certain tribes went north and certain tribes went south and some had didn't have to worry about uh, uh melanin because you know the sun what didn't cook them enough and then some had to very much worry about it but we are all part of the same tribe if you will uh uh and so and race in in and of itself is a fake construct but that's the system we live in so we make the adjustments and we create the content that is indicative of that system Mm -hmm. and so that's what my job is is to uh particularly in my stories, one of the things I aspire to is to show the drama in the system itself. Mm. Uh, it's not the easiest job, but that is the burden of, 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 of the Afrofuturists. Mm. You've, in your career, you've worked as both a cartoonist and in the uh, animation industry. And thinking of you uh, as someone with kind of like one toe in filmmaking and one toe in flat comics, for want of a better word, um, 
how much does that kind of affect the way you think in terms of pictures? Because you can't help but notice that when you, uh, you know, look at Infinitum um, or indeed the way that the page is structured in Matty's Rocket, where it's three kind of widescreen panels on top of each other on most pages, it makes me think that maybe you think in widescreen images. Uh, there's no question. Uh, you have uh, uh, very perceptive uh, uh, ideas. You are you hit the nail on the, the whatever the head. I'm getting the, the terminology <laughs> wrong. But yeah, yeah uh, I started as a cartoonist uh, back in the '80s. Uh, I was did the whole Marvel comics thing, did the whole thing, but never of any particular. Uh, I didn't excel at any of it. I mean, great as I think I'm good as an artist, but, you know, I was never big, big name or anything like that. But then the industry crashed mm. in the late uh, 90s and I made the transition to animation and to game design, uh, which certainly, you know, uh, what is it? I, I'm very stereotypical in that as a young artist, I thought I was the baddest artist on the planet. I, I was the man. Right. But then world life tends to show you you are not the man. You're just one of many of the ants running around here. Uh, and then all of a sudden I'm in the gaming industry and I'm realizing that I'm just one of me, everybody's talented in the game industry. Uh, and all of a sudden the skill set where I've learned how to draw on paper doesn't mean as much because everything is digital. Mm. So I had to make the transition over to that. Uh, which took a, a, a relatively short period of time. Now, in hindsight, uh, I went totally digital in 97 and I have not gone back. So everything you're seeing in Infinitum uh, is because it's more epic in scale. Mm -hmm. It is, uh, I'm still to this day, I can't seem to get out of it. I'm still teaching storyboarding uh, at two film students uh, here in the U.S. And uh, it's something that, uh, coming from a family of filmmakers, it's I I want you to buy in, and to buy in means paying appropriate attention to the widescreen and cinematic element of storytelling, but marrying it with comics, uh, and trying to do something bigger than life. So that's what the intention was. Mm. I mean, I guess. In terms of Afrofuturism uh, being mainstreamed as opposed to so, sort of like a niche it's interest. Wild, right? it's yeah. Like, it's like, it really, is it really mainstream? Like, it, yes, it, it, it feels like the door is slowly opening because if you'd asked me about the genre a few years ago, I think the only example I'd be able to talk about would be Sun Ra. But then on the back of um, Black Panther coming out, even though that was very much part of. Uh, a world that was predominantly created by white people. I mean, Black Panther himself first appeared in a comic by Jack Kirby and Stan Lee, you know, two white creators. Yeah. But it, it feels like the movie has kind of opened the door to a greater appreciation of Afrofuturism. Um, and actually talking to you today, um, I've just come from a comic book conference where someone uh, was talking about Adrift by James Marshall. Um, uh and there was a documentary on Afrofuturism that was on the BBC a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, yeah which um, which included uh, Drexia and how that came out of Detroit uh, techno. So it suddenly feels like that this is a sort of 
underground genre that is now having its moment in the sun. I mean, is that something that's kind of important to you, you know, that it's finally being appreciated by a wider audience? Well, yes, yes. But my experience of having been inside of it for decades, uh, uh, you know, I, I was listening to an interview recently where they had a group of, car, uh, of, 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 of Afrofuturists, and one of them was mentioning how uh, certain people couldn't make the cut if you will. I, I'm, I'm, he didn't say that, but I'm using the phrase and how, uh, you know, you had 10 people, but nine of them didn't make it. That one did, right? So that that one could shine, but the other nine didn't, right? Uh, that's an interesting notion. If you apply the idea of fairness and truth. I think that is incorrect. I believe when you exist in a world that is heavily influenced by race and perception that how about five or six or seven? Mm. We're talking about access to opportunity and the ability to be able to say, you have these ideas, we will allow you to do this. And it's about being allowed. But I found that the world is not fair. Mm. And ultimately what you must do is finish your work regardless. It took me a long, long time to, to understand that. Now, the beauty of technology is I'm here in uh, uh, El Barrio, uh, uh, New York City, and you're in London, right? Mm. And we can talk in real time. So the technology has democratized the process. It's taken out the overtly hierarchical uh, 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 idea that five people can make a decision on the livelihoods and the art of thousands and thousands of creators, right? Yeah. So technology now says, oh yeah, we know you did that, but now we're here. You're there, I'm here, we're talking about my work. And my work, yeah, it's fortunate. I'm very grateful for the um, opportunity to have got my work out through HarperCollins. That's a major publisher. You know, Infinitum is the first Afrofuturist graphic novel from one of the big multinational corporations. I'm very happy to have gotten that opportunity. Hmm. But that opportunity came from this, which was published in-house. Yeah. And it's the it's the ability to be able to not just have a voice, but to actually make your voice public. And so what you're saying about seeing Afrofuturism come to light is on one hand, um, you know, you would imagine the person who's in the desert who finally comes to the pond of water is, yes, there's a great, tremendous relief. I am drinking in as much water as I can. But man, what a walk. <laughs> you know, we had to brawl through the sun for decades. Uh, and I'm just happy to be here with that, that uh, 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 of the former ninth person, I'm happy to, to, to be there with now that one who had gotten through. I'm happy to be with the group now. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> it's interesting when you think of graphic novels as being a slightly different format to comics. It feels that the way that you can combine image and text in a graphic novel can have a much broader scope 
in terms of the way you can combine image and text that you know people think of comics as having panels as having word balloons you know having a certain kind of structure um while infinitum only has a single image per page you know what would be called the splash page in a comic is actually the format of the graphic novel with very few word balloons it's mainly kind of caption boxes in terms of then graphic novels having kind of a different range of combinations of image and text did approaching infinitum as a project make you think actually i don't have to use the more traditional language of comics i can use something that's a slightly different way of combining images and text together yes uh, uh regular standard comic books are a commercial construct they were in the newspapers and then someone said, oh, let's take all these newspaper strips and put them in a booklet. So the format, that seven by nine or whatever it is, format is a construct of a commercial. And now here we are decades later where mainstream comics are not, it's not front and center, it's actually graphic novels. So the trade market is still yet to be established, right? In terms of a standard. I like the idea that there is no standard in the sense that Raina Telgemeier or Jerry Kraft can do books, graphic novels, New Kid and Guts or Sisters. And those things can feature styles that in certain instances are much more adept to animation uh, and other almost like childlike drawings, right? Mm -hmm. And that is a great relief because it means that I have the right and the ability to do whatever I want. So I'm a huge fan and frankly, a child of Meto Herlant. I love the fully rendered art, the Mobius, the Richard Corbin, the Druyers, all that type of stuff. So I wanted to do a book that would be both big, long, epic, but I knew if you're going to have someone pay 25 bucks for this thing, it had better, and you're only going to feature one image per page, which is essentially working as a panel. You had better make sure that each panel is a painting. Mm. That's the first thing. Second thing is, if I had tried to do that same thing with nine panels a page, I would probably be dead now. <laughs> so that was the commercial, the aesthetic, and the, the practical decisions that all fused into one. So that's why I did uh, Infinitum the way I did. Even with Maddie's Rocket, it's never more than three panels. Mm. It's either three panels or less. Why? It's doable. You can tell a valid story with that. And also, uh, it's cool. Mm. I mean, it, it does make me wonder if you have some kind of like dislike of speech balloons because even in Matty's Rocket whenever there is the equivalent of a speech balloon instead of it being a traditional bubble it's done in the style of a silent movie intertitle which I thought was a really interesting thing to do you know and is very different to anything I've seen before in most comics yeah for me uh comics uh you know having you know come from Mississippi and then making the transition to school of visual arts for like a semester and I studied under uh Mark Newgarden and, and Paul Karasik they show their their book is uh, how to read Nancy I'll never forget the exercise they gave me I hated it oh my god we gotta 
tell a story using the art technique of Ernie Bushman. Uh, not just the art, but the storytelling technique. And what that one lesson showed me was that you can do anything. So for example, uh, in the case of Maddie's Rocket, right? Which started out as an animation. That's why all of the panels are widescreen. Ah, so I had gotten a deal at that point where I said, okay, you will do Maddie's Rocket as a comic. So as I begin to do it, I begin to shorten the panel. So I actually have five or so pages that are like a regular comic book. Uh, because I was told, even after I had submitted that, oh, well, it's cool. It looks nice, but it's not a comic. I'm like, what do you mean? It's not a comic. Well, you have to redraw everything. And I was like, really? Because I had already put four years into fully painted backgrounds, character designs, everything. And I went, really? Then I noticed uh, an animator from Pixar had done a comic, I forget his name, where it was just all storyboards. Hmm. And I realized, no, 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 no. If you're going to apply what looks and does not look like a comic, again, we go back to that commercial decision that was made decades and decades ago. That's, that's just a decision. That decision is not all there is. You can play around with these things. That's why there are panels in Maddie's Rocket that the panels look like cards from silent movies. Mm. But then the swoop comes around to the character to show that that character's talking. So I used, I made a decision to not only use the graphic element of the silent movie to show spoken dialogue, right? Mm. So that effectively works as the word balloon, but also it sets the time and the place. Mm. So I think not only as a written narrative person, but also as a visual narrative. So I'm thinking on multiple levels, or at least that's the attempt to think on multiple multiple levels. And frankly, it's more interesting to take chances like that. I mean, uh, 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 Adrian Tomine and 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 those guys they play around with form, uh, but I wanted to play around with form within genre conventions. I want to be able to do science fiction and people who have who can lift 10 people or, or you know or fly in the sky. I want to be able to play around with the formats of comics, but to play within that pulp environment that I love so much. Mm. Um like I said, I'm no expert on Afrofuturism. It's only something that I've really kind of started to learn about recently. And and so forgive me, you know, for speaking as a, a clumsy, privileged white person, but no watching that BBC documentary, one of the points that they were making is that a lot of Afrofuturism comes about as a reaction to some kind of horrific event in the past in terms of black culture. So they, in that documentary, they were using this kind of doorway um, where slaves kind of left their old lives as being independent human beings and from that point on had lost their autonomy and lost their identity and they saw that as a kind of starting point for Afrofuturism that in the sense that from that point on as they were no longer human in terms of being commodified by white owners they'd become sort of robot-like in a way and I felt that reading Matty's Rocket 
what you were doing was taking a traumatic moment in black history, the way that black people were murdered by the Klan in America and marginalised and so on, and then seeing how that might brush up against kind of traditional white science fiction. So you spoke about Dan Dare. There's a clear reference in the narrative to The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. And so were those kind of the things that fed into it, kind of taking traumatic black history and seeing what happens if we mix that with kind of um, American and European science fiction? Right. I'll, I'll keep it uh, even more, uh, 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 you know, streamlined. Uh, Afrofuturism is science fiction. Sure. Afrofuturism is science fiction. Uh, it's just that, you know, science fiction is a form of drama. And drama has both a combination of trauma hmm. and joy. And it is about the balance between the two. Uh, whereas, say, you brought, uh, you just mentioned about the idea alluding to slavery, right? That's all in science fiction. Hmm. It's just generally what they do is they do it via proxy. You don't show Black characters in slavery in science fiction. What you do is you use a substitute, an alien race. James Cameron, you, you understand what I'm saying? He couldn't show Native Americans being slaughtered, so he made them blue people. Hmm on the Pandora, right? Okay, but that's an old trope. That's something that's been done. My character in the book is immortal. That's been done a gazillion times. However, I am a black man, right? So I am simply touching upon the things that I know and that are from my current of life, my stream of life, and simply being honest about it. Mm. And that's all that Afrofuturism is. Beyond being a cool name uh, put together by Mark Derry, uh, it is just simply an announcement to the world that, oh, this is science fiction, but I am Black, mm. and it's still science fiction. Mm. That's it. So basically, you just don't need to use the metaphor anymore. You don't have to yeah. pretend these blue people or Native Americans or the X-Men. Yeah, sure. I don't use the metaphor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, you don't. It, it, it liberates you in a way that you don't have to pretend that the X Men are a metaphor for being gay or whatever. You can actually put gay characters in it. Or if you're a black creator, you can say, "I don't have to pretend these robots are slave. I can actually use black people in my, you know, work." Right. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, that's that's the thing that's liberating about science fiction is that you can because you have the ability to use things that are about proxy, you also can do things that are real. That's science fiction is taking the social construct of, of what's going on right now, make it, it's the process of making a comment, uh, a comment on what's happening now by projecting what's coming or what's come before. Mm. And that's the beauty of it is just now uh, it's, it's like, I've been doing this most of my life. It's just that what's different now is that the world has caught up. Mm -hmm. So now uh, 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 some of the nine people left behind can get in. Mm. But I, I mean, I, I just think it, it's really interesting. And I think this kind of taps into perhaps why Afrofuturism is having its moment now. That, you know, like what I was saying about um, 
Matty's Rocket sort of taking black experience and then mixing it with Dan Dare and H.G. Wells seems to be something that's kind of happening in culture at the moment. You know, for example, if you look at the, um, say, the Watchmen TV series, you get you take a, a comic book by white creators and then you say, well, what if we actually mix that with the history of the Tulsa race massacre? All of a sudden it becomes a very different proposition. And so characters and voices that were completely marginalised in the original comic become front and centre in sort of the remix. Yeah, it's the nature of drama. Not only was the beginning of, for a spoiler alert for those folks who didn't see the Watchmen series, it starts during the uh, uh, Tulsa race ride where, uh, you know, a white mob converged on a town called Black Wall Street, uh, uh, a.k.a., where black characters or black people had basically created a self-sustainable economy and culture, and they burned it down all based on a lie, of course, but uh, it runs deeper than that. The beginning of the story was a young boy who was put in a getaway vehicle to escape the destruction of the town, which was also an analogy of Kal-El being saved by his parents. You see what I'm saying? Uh, uh, that's why I love Watchmen, because it worked on so many levels. Mm. And that's okay. That's part of being a citizen of the world, if you will. Mm. Uh, that's one of the things that is my intention to do as a creator, uh, as a middle-aged creator now, uh, uh, is to be able to push in a way and to dabble in a way in the things that are not said and said simultaneously. Mm. So, you know, you spoke about how Infinitum, um, you know, is that fully coloured, that fully painted. <laughs> it's it's like an itch we have to scratch. You have to hold it up to the camera. Um, it is this kind of fully painted Metal Herlant style. Uh, and it's hundreds of pages long. As such, could you just talk a little bit about the whole process of making it? Did you kind of script it as however many hundreds, single panels, did you then pencil it and then go over the top with uh, digital paint? Well, to begin, it hurt. <laughs> uh, uh, I, when I submitted, uh, when I first started on it, it was for the New York Times, believe it or not. Huh. It was one of the, we were doing a story on Afrofuturism, and I was supposed to be the visual artist that was going to do it. And di it didn't work out. It was one of three pitches that I gave. They obviously passed over on that one. And I continued with that story because I came, I came up with the premise of it back in the early 2000s about a man who can't die. Uh, and I kept going with it. I, 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 you know, one of the challenges of my career has been just simply finishing work. Hmm. Now I'm hell bent on finishing everything of my work. Hmm. Uh, uh, and so the idea was to, uh, I don't want to lose a, a uh, uh, the, the, the crux of what I'm saying, the idea was to create a story that as we, I wanted to do something that was good, that looked a certain way, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I, as an individualist, I want to be respected just like everybody else, right? I want 
you know, you know, oh, well, I've, the art is doing for, nah, 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 nah. I'm doing the art for everybody. I Meaning once I finish that work, that work goes out into the public. That's mm-hmm. the idea. But it had to be finished. To map it out meant that I had to take each panel, which started out at the beginning, 28 pages. And then it ballooned to 130 pages. And then by the time I submitted it to the publisher, it was 230 pages. But through edits and adjustments, it ended up being 280 pages. Uh, And I went through the standard process of doing breakdowns. But those breakdowns had to be moved around. Images had to be shifted. But the core stories were the same from the beginning. Mm. Uh, the dialogue was the same, but then there were additions and adjustments. For example, there was a point where the lovers that are in the story, there was not much going on beyond that first initial introduction. But then it was put to me, well, we want to know what they're thinking. Right. And I said, OK, so I'll put it in there. And then they're like, well, we don't care about that. I was like, no, that's staying in there because <laughs> it made the story richer. So mm-hmm. the process of creating Infinitum, both narratively and visually, well, from a, a prose-based narrative and a visual-based narrative, was akin to all forms of fiction, all forms of writing, because when you're doing a graphic novel, particularly a fully painted one, like the, the way I was doing, you're doing production design. How does this environment look? How does, how does the ship that uh, uh, John has built this fleet of ships to take his employees to another planet. What, what is the warp core? How does it deal with, you have to research that stuff. Mm. So all of the typical Wally Wood, Ralph McQuarrie, Sid Mead, Jack Kirby, uh, Ed Davis, uh, all of those things that had to be employed to make it become a living thing those things had to be done. Mm. <laughs> and so roughly how long did each aspect of the project take? Man. Uh, well, again, I came up with the story yeah. <laughs> in the early 2000s, but I would say the variant that ultimately became this started in 2018. Okay. I spent most of 2018, well, started on the late 2016 for New York Times when that project was canceled at the end of 2016. I worked to all of 2017 as well as doing Manage Rocket. So mm-hmm. I was off and on on it. But once I began, formally decided it was February to March of 2018. I worked all the way through June of 2019. I signed my contract in June of 2019 and I turned in my first completed draft for about 240 something odd pages in November of 2019, which would then add another 25 to 30 pages by March Mm. of 2020. So I finished just the pandemic hit. Okay. Wow. So that's still pretty quick. I mean, I'm trying to do the maths in my head that maybe a page every two days or something in terms of finished art, you know. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, my, my arms felt like I had, I don't know if it was nerve damage, but there was a period now I'm recovered, Mm. but there was a period where my arms hurt constantly. They they just Mm. couldn't do it. That's why I've now invested into ergonomic furniture and, (laughs) you know, I'm getting all that straight now because I, I have to treat myself like an athlete now, Mm. you know, you really, 
you know, I, I have to get out of the very macho uh, uh, idea of, oh, you play with pain. Like, no, no, you're trying to make this last as long as you can. So you have to be ergonomic. You know, your chair has to have appropriate lumbar support. You have to have this and you have to be able to lean back, that type of thing. Th these are the things, even the office furniture I have is different. Hmm. And you spoke about uh, wanting to finish everything that you've been working on and alluded to that you're going to return to Matty's Rocket. Um, yes. The first volume of Matty's Rocket was four individual issues that you collected as a graphic novel. Um, going forward, are you going to stick with that, that it's going to be floppies and then collections? No, uh, for me, graphic novels. Okay. Uh, graphic novels. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, there are four stories, but only two of them were physically published. Okay. I got to the third and I was like, man, I'm tired of putting out floppies because I'm working just as hard to sell a floppy as I would a gra graphic novel. Mm. So I did that and then I kept going. So, but I only took it up to about 124 pages or so because there was so much, only so much I could physically print. I bought my own printer to print. <laughs> Uh, and so now I'm adding 30 to 50 new pages uh, to Maddie's Rocket One, which will be reissued. And I've already gotten all of the breakdowns done for uh, book two. And book three is about three fourths done. And uh, I would love to be able to, to take it. Right now, my projection is about six to eight books of Maddie's Rocket. Okay. You do like to set yourself a challenge. <laughs> Uh, you know, if, 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 if Dave Sim, who had his issues could work for 30 years to finish a book. So what do I have to complain about? Absolutely. Get in there and do the work because at my age, uh, it's about legacy. What are you going to leave behind? Yeah. And I guess, you know, in this day and age where floppy comics, uh, seem to be on the wane, but graphic novels are being appreciated more and more and stocked in bookshops as well as comic shops then actually that is a more sensible way of, you know, continuing the project. Yeah, it's like 32 pages or 22 to 32 pages. It's like, that's cool. I'm not knocking it. Mm. Uh, and frankly, you know, my success in traditional comics, as I said earlier, it was limited. So I don't have any sentimental mm. and it should only look like this. It's like, nah, I kind of like want to do what I want to do now, which may work in the trade industry or not, but, I want to do what I want to do now. So that's it. You know, I'm just, it's just, you know, that's it. That's where I am now in my life. Nice. And like you said, having uh, Infinitum published um, by a major book uh, company must be kind of, you know, very much a kind of celebration of your work and, and affirmation of what you're doing. And also um, Arthur Jaffer uh, provides an introduction. So do you feel that, you know, you are now, you know, getting kind of recognition for your work, having, you know, worked at it for years and getting to the point in your career where you feel not only am I doing great work, but actually people are recognizing it. Yeah, it, 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 it is certainly that. Uh, mm. I could try to sit here. Well, no, none of that matters. Yeah, it matters. It does. It matters. <laughs> it's, it is uh, uh, very fulfilling and validating. It is. Uh, you know, uh, I have to... I can't sit here and say that, you know, the uh, the absolute insane reviews that I've had the book uh, has been overwhelmingly positive. Mm -hmm. uh, 
which I mean, I'm not going to sit here, Alex, and tell you, oh, well, you know, I don't read my reviews. <laughs> I read them. <laughs> I read them. And, and it has been surreal. Um, you know, do you have different standards? You want your book to first exist. So I passed that test. You want it to be critically acclaimed. That's really your bottom after you get it published. I've done great. I can't, I, I'm sitting here being interviewed by someone in London. What, you know, what do you want? Now the next thing is the business part. You need your book to sell. Mm. And that's why I'm here on people, people in London <laughs> and here and there, because that's the reality. So, uh, and you know, with art doing the um, book, that's my oldest brother. Uh, mm. It is, uh, it meant a lot for him to, you know, to me, uh, for him to to write the forward and, and you know my 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 uh, my uh manager uh who's herbalt media you know it's like that that type of thing just taking all of these moving parts with what he did to help me get to that point uh has been important you know it is it's leading to a lot of opportunities that uh, so, so stuff way beyond that I never thought would have existed, but mm -hmm. that's coming up, you know, some things I could talk about, some things I can't. So it's a bit of a surreal experience, you know, if that makes sense. So yeah, yeah. it matters. It matters a lot. Brilliant. Cool. So I guess um, people should keep an eye on your website for when uh, Matty's rocket returns and infinitum, as they say, is available in all good bookshops. <laughs> it's amazing. It's crazy. It's like, where can you? You can get it everywhere. Really? <laughs> everywhere you can get it. And uh, stand by for Maddie's Rocket 1, a revised Maddie's Rocket 2, and Black Metropolis, my memoirs. It's, everything is coming. Oh, yes. No, I forgot to ask you about that. So Black Metropolis was um, initially an exhibition that was sort of celebrating 30 years of um, Afrofuturism. For people who kind of missed that, could you Tell us a little about that exhibition and how it's leading to this book. I'll, I'll take the story that's actually in infinitum and I'll, I'll uh, recite it. So during that first show, it's been done twice. First at New York Gallatin Galleries, then Hammond's House in Atlanta. And uh, we will see what happens over the next few months with the upcoming uh, uh, Carnegie Afrofuturism Festival that I'll be in as well. But, you know, it's too soon to to make any announcements yet. But uh it, it the 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 curator at the first show, she, young lady, uh, very nice, very professional. She's going through my work and she snaps. She goes, "Oh my God, you're like some kind of OG Afrofuturist." <laughs> and I looked at my brother and I went, "Did she just call me old?" And I could see her eyes go really big. And I said, "No, no, no, you're correct. I am an OG Afrofuturist. I've been doing it for a long time. The difference is." And this is something that I've had to come through back to that finishing thing. If the work is not out, it doesn't matter. Hmm. So we did the shows. Now all that work, which was the plan from the beginning, is a really begun and proceeded in earnest to finish up the book, which I hope to have done within the next few months. Uh, and uh, that part I can say. And uh, we're going to get Black Metropolis, the book out there. So it'll Fantastic. be real. You could hit somebody over the head with it. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And also, it would be nice to see the exhibition on this side of the Atlantic. 
I mean, um, you know, I, I went to Arthur's uh, solo show in London a couple of years ago. Is it and, uh, at the Serpentine Gallery, which is in okay, the... Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, and, it, and it was interesting as well because you go to an exhibition by Arthur Jaffer expecting it to be sort of just stills of his cinematography and you're confronted by like a six foot cardboard uh, drawing of the Hulk, you know, in in the foyer. So it was interesting that that actually kind of brought in comic book imagery that I wasn't expecting either. Yeah, it's the new gods, man. You know, yeah. it's these big battles, big, huge <laughs> battles, huge, huge scenes. Everything has to be bigger and larger than life. That's a, 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 a novel storytelling technique, but it's one that's very useful. Yeah. And uh, he's no exception in that regard. <laughs> cool. Well, it's been a, a great pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Alex. Um, Thank you so much. Cheers. All right. Have Thank that. you. You can find more about Tim Fielder's work by going to his website, timfielder.com. That's T-I-M-F-I-E-L-D-E-R.com. There's more info about Infinitum on HarperCollins's website. That's H-A-R-P-E-R. C-O-L-L-I-N-S dot com. Search for Infinitum, I-N-F-I-N-I-T-U-M. And you can find more about Matty's Rocket in progress on Tim's website, as well as a chance to see an animated version of the opening credits on Vimeo by going to vimeo.com, V-I-M-E-O dot com, stroke 17667110. Today's episode of Panel Borders was the 501st episode of the show, and you can find the previous 500 on our blog, www.panelborders.wordpress.com, including last month's show, including interviews with Nicholas Streeton, Kath Tate, and Mike Lake, and various other interviews with such luminaries of the medium, such as Alan Moore, Neil Gaiman, Audrey Neffenerger, Raymond Briggs, Art Spiegelman, Stan Sakai, Toshio Mieda, Jim Stalin, Gerald Scarf, Hannah Berry, Chris Riddell, and many more, if you go to panelborders.com and click on the link marked Index. As we move into the summer and what hopes to be the end of lockdown, various comic book festivals are starting to advertise their programs for these autumn events, including this year's Lakes International Comic Art Festival, which is taking place on the 15th to 17th of October in Kendall in the Lake District. Guests include French artist Boulet, local graphic novelist Oliver East, Walking Dead artist Charlie Adlard, and various creators from around the world, including Stephen Appleby, Kate Charlesworth, David Roach, Greg Rucker, Lucy Sullivan, and many more. You can find more info about LICAF by going to Comic artfestival.com. The following month, this year's Thought Bubble Convention will be taking place in Harrogate on the 13th and 14th of November, and you can find more info about Thought Bubble by going to thoughtbubblefestival.com, including info on such guests as Chuck Palaniuk, David Aja, Raphael Albuquerque, Doug Braithwaite, Frank Miller, Gail Simone, Babs Tarr, Rachel Stott, James Tynant IV, Emma Viacelli, and G. Willow Wilson. Ladies Do Comics are taking a break in July 2021, but will be back in August. Find more info about all future events by going to their website, ldcomics.com, 
including info about the LDC Awards, which offer prizes, training and mentorship for graphic novels in progress by female creators. The deadline for this is the 31st of July, and you can find more info on their website. Panel Borders was recorded, edited and introduced by Alex Fitch, and is a Panel Borders production. You can find all previous interviews on our website, www.panelborders.wordpress.com, and we'll be back in August. Resonance FM schedule changes during the summer, so please keep an eye on our website for info about our next broadcast. And until then, as ever, thanks for listening. This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.